Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hello, Deep State Radio listeners. We hope you will consider supporting our work by becoming a member. Members receive access to bonus content, member briefings, access to our Slack community, and much more. Most of all, your support allows us to continue to provide you with the thoughtful opinion and analysis you have come to expect from us. Membership is just $5 per month through the end of November. Visit bit.ly slash dsrnetwork and use code BLACKFRIDAY, one word, at checkout. That's bit.ly slash dsrnetwork, code BLACKFRIDAY. Thank you and have a wonderful Thanksgiving. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you this Thanksgiving week from New York City, coming to you from the nation's capital, fresh from a world tour. We have Ed Luce of the Financial Times. Hi, Ed. How are you? Very good. Thank you, David. And also fresh from a national tour, we have Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University Law School. How are you, Rosa? Hi, David. And as usual, hiding out in California, <laughs> we have um, Corey Shockey, the American Enterprise Institute. How are you doing, Corey? I am exceedingly well. Thank you, David. I'm glad to hear that on all of your counts. There's so many things going on in the world today. Every once in a while, we have to do one of those shows where we sort of do clean up, touch a bunch of things that are happening. But I'm going to give you each something different to start with, and then we'll go from there. And I want to start with you, Ed, because the news of today, Monday, is that the president of the United States has reappointed the Fed chair, has appointed Lael Brainerd, who was on the Fed board, as vice chair. I've seen a bunch of stories talking about the hard choice he made. As far as I can tell, either one of them would have done the exact same thing as Fed chair. So I don't know why it's such a hard choice. But you are with the Financial Times, so you get it. Please tell us. Was it a hard choice? Was it a good choice? I think it was a good choice. It could just as well have been Lael Brainerd, who technically is actually more qualified than Powell because she's an economist. But we're about to... Well, he is actually the chairman of the Fed. He's been doing the jobs, you know. He's a lawyer. So, uh, you know, if you're looking at somebody's policy credentials, she, she is seen as... More, more qualified. But um, yeah, he's got, he's got better work experience, if you like. And as you say, there's no big difference between them on monetary policy. They've both been highly accommodative, as uh, Fedwatchers like to call it. And that was extremely necessary during the pandemic. It saved the economy. But we're now turning into a change of cycle, a change of monetary policy cycle, which is always hazardous. And continuity, I think, was probably, given all this uncertainty, a pretty smart choice. 
The fact that Brain has been elevated to vice chair suggests she'd be his natural successor four years from now. The one big difference that they did have was over regulation. Um, Brainerd, uh, you know, was more in line with the Warren Sherrod Brown um, perspective that there'd been too much relaxation of capital and liquidity restrictions on banks and voted against. And they also differed on whether the Fed should play a role, as you've seen the European Central Bank and the Bank of England begin to do in regulating carbon finance, which is a really important debate. And it was fascinating to see that in Biden's statement announcing uh, the renewal of Powell's chairmanship, that he said Powell and Brainerd share my strong belief that the Fed must take action to combat climate change. And I think that is, that's probably been underappreciated so far, but this is a, a massive, in my opinion, very necessary change in, in the Fed's regulatory remit. It doesn't affect its dual mandate on inflation and unemployment, but it does signal a potentially massive and massively important new role that the Fed was, is going to be playing in, in penalizing carbon financing, uh, essentially. And I, I, I'm glad to see that Powell, in what I imagine was a condition of his being renewed, accepting the necessity for this. And I think that story's, that story's going to be a huge one. Let me, let me ask you a very quick follow-up question on that. You talked about the dual mandate and the dual mandate you know, between inflation and job creation often involves certain kinds of uh, trade-offs. But with what you've just presented, one could imagine a kind of a triple mandate where you wouldn't want to do undertake something with regard to job policy or inflationary policy that didn't fit with your policy on carbon. Can you see things evolving in that direction? Well, the Fed, you know, has has a it's two separate roles. One is monetary policy, and the dual mandate right. applies to that. And then it regulates banks. And so I think this affects the latter. I don't think it affects the dual mandate of, of macro policy. It affects how they regulate banks. And you know, if, for example, on this dispute that Brainerd and Powell have over whether um, the Fed should have loosened capital restrictions on banks over the last few years, if that had been actually a question of whether it kept them just as tight for banks that continue regardless to finance fossil fuel investments and, and projects, then you can see how important that change would be, but also that it would fit into the Fed's existing roles. When Powell, Powell's confirmation comes up, he's going to get some Republican votes. The, right, the far right won't vote for him. Probably Elizabeth Warren won't. She called him a dangerous man. But I think he'll get a majority of the votes. But the far right are going to be the Ted Cruz's of this world are going to be talking about climate change socialism. They'll be wrong, but that's going to be the politics of this. Corey, also in the news, as we're looking at the headlines today, growing concerns, and we've been talking about this for weeks, so to say it's growing is something, about Russia's buildup on the Ukrainian border. There's a sense Putin is actually in the position of doing something and entering into kind of protracted conflict there. Do you think things have changed materially in any direction? Is this 
situation, one that we're really going to need to watch very closely over the holidays? Yes, it's absolutely one we are going to need to watch closely over the holidays. I only hope we have the time of the holidays without Russia having invaded Ukraine further than it has already invaded Ukraine. Putin, in his Valdai speech in the last week, was talking in very reckless, dangerous terms. And lots of hot-headed people in Kiev kind of blame shifting and also trying to tell a story where Russia is an innocent victim and the United States and the NATO allies keep clawing more and more territory aggressively surrounding Russia rather than the actual truth, which is for the last 30 years, the NATO allies have been incredibly restrained, trying to engage Russia in partnership, only very hesitantly expanding NATO membership as Russia's threats grew more pronounced to the states of Eastern Europe, to the Baltic states, to countries in the Balkans. And in fact, the way that Russia invaded Ukraine, took Crimea, and has for what, 10 years now? continued to prosecute war in the remainder in the Donbass, also part of Ukraine. And they've now amassed over 100,000 troops on the border and are making very threatening noises. I think what the Russians are trying to do is, well, let me say, here's what Putin says they're trying to do. They are trying to keep those hotheads in Ukraine from turning the place into an anti-Russian military base for NATO. And in fact, to the extent NATO countries are selling arms to Ukraine, are training Ukrainian forces, it's as a result of Russia's behavior in Ukraine. You know, separatist forces backed and armed by Russia, shooting down civilian airliners. I think the only good news in this is that Ukraine has been capable enough politically and militarily these last 10 years or so to keep Russia from succeeding in swallowing more of Ukraine. And Vladimir Putin ought to be pretty worried that Ukrainians' desire for independence from Russia has been strong enough for them to hold their own all this time. Russia might even contemplate that they could invade Ukraine with 100,000 troops and end up failing to achieve their objectives of swallowing more Ukrainian territory or so intimidating uh, Ukrainians that they don't continue to turn their country into a free, secure and prosperous Ukraine. Rosa, let me pick up on that. Let's assume for a moment that you're a top advisor to the president of the United States. And at some point between Christmas, Thanksgiving and Christmas, you notice that the Russians have crossed the border. What do you tell the president he ought to do? Oh, boy, that's not a fair question to ask me because that's a hard one. 
I'm going to push back on the question by saying the Biden administration, not because it's, it's not perfect, but they're not going to wake up one day and suddenly notice that this happened. Right. That's it's not going to happen that way. I still don't think it's going to happen at all. I may be wrong. I, I hope I'm right. But I don't think it would get to that because I think if it gets significantly worse, I think we do, a, you know, we do exactly what we're already beginning to do, which is a, a flurry of intense diplomacy saying, do not do this. Do not do this right now. No kidding. We are serious. We cannot cross that line. It will radically escalate things. And I do think Putin will back down. I think he will go. I think he will do exactly what he's done so far. He go, you know, exactly up to the limit. He will push and push and push until he gets that incredibly strong pushback from the U.S. saying, do not do that or there will be some kind of open conflict. Stop. And I think he will stop. So so I, I, I don't think that will happen. Right. I mean, if it did happen and I was Biden's uh, communications person. I think I would be saying something like, unfortunately, I actually have an extended vacation myself scheduled starting yesterday. Goodbye, because I sure would not want to be the person stuck explaining how we uh, while we were snoozing and wrapping Christmas presents or whatever without our noticing it. Ukraine was invaded by the Russians. That would pretty much suck. There's no way you spin that. There's no way you say, oh, no big deal. It's true. But, Ed, you know, I mean, for Putin, if he's going to do something, it's a really interesting moment. You know, the got a transition in Germany. You've got a new chancellor coming in soon who doesn't particularly want to get deeply involved in foreign policy, doesn't want to put that at the front of things. And you've got a president who's just pulled out of Afghanistan who will then be confronted with the possibility of, do I take a more active role in this or do I get accused of sort of rolling over and, and playing dead for Putin. What do you think, Ed? Uh, I mean, it's a very good question. I was tempted to flippantly suggest a Team America, World Police, Hans Blix, strongly worded letter. But I don't think that would, uh, I don't think that would deter Putin, whatever, whatever stress test this actually turns out to be. We could have a free and frank exchange of views. Exactly. Candid <laughs> behind the scenes. But the... The moment, I think, requires us to look back at what happened in 2008 with Georgia and what happened in 2014 with Crimea and to look at our signaling in the build-up to what were Putin nibbling off chunks of both countries, Abkhazia in, in Georgia and, and Crimea, of course, in, uh, from the Ukraine, and look at what it was that we didn't signal that would embolden Putin to think he can pull off a hat trick here. I don't know whether it would be it would be formally annexing Donbass or, or, or whatever that might entail. And I suspect the conclusions we would come up with is that we have to have we, we have to have sort of credible and unified Western statements on this. And I think there's been some signs in the last week or two, notwithstanding the fact that Germany is in transition and that Olaf Scholz is a little different to Angela Merkel on this. He's quite reluctant to sound hawkish. I think there are, there are signs the Europeans have been quicker to, to issue the kinds of statements that imply Putin would get much more pushback than the previous two times, a sort of fool me once um, scenario. But I might be, I mean, Corey will know better. I might be just projecting wishful thinking onto the situation. And if indeed Putin did, annex 
Donbass, it's an interesting question. What would we do? So, Corey, say Putin tries to do this. As Rosa sort of implied and as history has shown, there are a bunch of things that are fairly easy to do. You know, we could put out a press release saying we don't like it. We could work with the other allies to put out press releases saying they don't like it. We could have a NATO meeting and say we all don't like it. We could have a United Nations Security Council meeting and say that we all don't like it. We could even volunteer to offer some material support to Ukraine and possibly start imposing some sanctions on the Russians, including starting with Nord Stream 2 or something like that. But the other side of the line, the not-so-easy range to more active involvement, cyber, other kinds of things. The morning after this happens and they do all the easy things, do you write an op-ed someplace saying they should be doing some of the harder things? So I think it's enormously important for the U.S. to move forward in unison with European allies on this. And no matter what we may be tempted to do, as the Bush administration was tempted to admit Ukraine and Georgia to NATO in 2007, 2008, not only will it be advantageous to Russia splitting the alliance for us not to go forward together, but Europeans also bear greater risk from Russia than does the United States partly because of geography, partly because of magnitude of power. So I think it's really important for both of those reasons, namely keeping the allies together and because they genuinely experience greater risk from Russia than we do to move forward in unison. And I think there is zero probability that NATO allies will agree together to commit military forces in the defense of Ukraine once Russia has attacked it. I think it's possible that NATO allies will send troops to Ukraine in advance of a Russian invasion, that is, to force the Russians to take the escalatory move of involving NATO, rather than NATO taking the escalatory move of engaging a Russia that has already invaded Ukraine. But I also think there are important, there are other important things we can do. I mean, it looks to me like the thing that Vladimir Putin and his supporters in Russia fear most is transparency, is showing where their bank accounts are and foreclosing opportunities to harbor their families and their money in societies that are better governed than Russia is. And I do think there are quite a number of financial and transparency moves that are asymmetric counters. Other asymmetric counters, we have the ability to drive the cost up to Russia, forcing them, for example, to defend their eastern seaboard by having NATO military exercises off the coast of Russia's maritime Pacific, we could start killing Russian mercenaries in Mali and Syria and forcing accountability on the Russians for the fact that they are using gray zone warfare. 
we're also actually pretty good at cyber offense these days. And there's a lot of mischief we could make in cyberspace. We too have the ability to turn off electricity and to stop bank transfers from occurring. And we have been enormously restrained in the face of Russia's aggression against the United States, against NATO allies, and against other sovereign countries. And that could all come to a screeching halt. Interesting, actually. It raises kind of the possibility that in response to their hybrid warfare, the little green men and so forth, we go into our own non-warfare warfare with cyber and other kinds of things that are offensive, but don't fall into the traditional category. Rose, I'm going to turn the page here a little bit. We've just got a few minutes in this segment. There's a story that, I, that, that you may find sort of tangential, but I think it's kind of interesting. And that's the story of Chinese tennis player Peng Shuai, who was a top-ranked woman tennis player who came out and said that a senior Chinese party official had sexually harassed, abused her. And then she sort of disappeared from the scene. And the Women's Tennis Association said, no way, we're not going to tolerate this. And we're not going to go away. We're going to demand something be done, which is very different from how a lot of other groups have handled it. And we're going to encourage other athletes, perhaps not to get involved. And all this comes on the eve of an Olympics next year in China. And the United States government right now is contemplating a diplomatic boycott so that the athletes go, but government officials don't, as a way of sending a message to the Chinese about their treatment of the Uyghurs and the treatment of Hong Kong and so forth. And this all just strikes me as a interesting and also fraught moment in the U.S.-China relationship where issues like how a single athlete is treated can throw the relationship into kind of uh, into a difficult place. And I was wondering what your reaction is to all this. It's true. And I, I don't think this is entirely new by any stretch, but it, to, to a very great extent, it is, it is a the acceleration of the poster child for rights violations or some other big problem um, is partly attributable. I think, obviously, the rise of social media, you know, just that information goes so quickly. That said, it's obviously not completely new. I mean, Amnesty International started out as an organization that focused on raising uh, awareness through poster children, basically, right? In that sense, it's not at all new. I don't know, however, that it is likely to have kind of a near-term impact on relations between U.S. and China, just because we have so many bigger fish to fry and, and we have so, there, you know, there's so many rights issues that relate to China. It's not clear that this is going to really be one more. The, the area where I think this is most likely to have an impact, if it has a significant impact, is probably on U.S. opinion. You know, it, I think part of the reason that the amnesty poster child dissident approach worked so well, and the reason that it's still that kind of focused attention on an individual works so well is it's really hard for people to get a grip on systemic problems, you know, that don't have faces. And it's really easy for people to understand a story about an individual human being, especially an appealing human being, 
and get very focused on that. And that then becomes sort of the linchpin for focusing on a, a whole set of broader issues, that personalization of politics. So is it faster now? Does it happen more? Maybe. Is it new? No. Will it affect U.S. public pressure on the Biden administration on China? Maybe, but I'm not entirely sure. We'll, I mean, we'll see. It's, it's, it's too soon to say. Hard to imagine that the WTA could stand up to the Chinese on this one case and the United States then choose to ignore it with regard to the upcoming Olympics. So we're going to end the segment. And for those of you who are departing with us here, we say take care of yourselves. Join us again soon. Go to the DSR network for more. And for those of you who are going to stay on for the bonus content, we'll, we'll be back with you in a moment. 